turn with me to James chapter 1. And before we begin our, our message and get to the text of Scripture this morning, let me just say a special thank you to those of you that uh, attended or helped to serve uh, in any way in the conference this weekend, those of you that participated together with us. Uh, it was an outstanding time. And uh, I don't say that because I was a part of putting it on, but because I think God used it to build us up. And it was a good opportunity for fellowship. Uh, I hope you got to meet and be around some other Christians from another place. And so I look forward to the opportunity to do that again. But for those of you that gave your time this weekend to that end, I pray that God would bless the time that you gave and that he would use it to um, build his kingdom. Okay, James chapter 1. So last week, if you were not with us, as we began this great letter, this book in the New Testament, we looked only at verse (laughs) 1. And uh, we talked about James, the servant of God, this bondservant that has this very high view of his position before God, his standing before him, and then also of the Lord Jesus Christ and his divinity. And then he shows his love for and his understanding of the Old Testament and his understanding of what God is doing among these dispersed Christians to whom he writes. So then we're going to turn this morning... Uh, to begin the content, if you will, of the letter, his first exhortations to them, uh, and and to some degree, maybe maybe what he saw to be most important in in uh, a most important need in their life, what he begins to write to them about, and so we're going to look at verses two through eighteen together this morning. And my hope and prayer is that you will find great comfort and help from these verses. Uh, they are very comforting and they can be very helpful. Okay. Before we read this together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we simply ask that you would open your word to us who cannot see it, that you would give us eyes, God, that you would give us wisdom, that you would lead us to know the truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Beginning of verse 2, James encourages them to count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those that love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot, God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. Okay. It has been said, and all of you have 
heard it, and many of you may have even said before, but it has been said many times that there are only two sure things in life, death and taxes. Some of you smiled before I gave the end of that. There are only two things that are sure in life, death and taxes. Well, I think that's um, a poor statement. And while I don't think that the, uh, the addition that I'm going to make to it is by any means going to make it a proper or a right statement, because it simply is not, I do think that it would make it a better statement if it would be said that there are two things in life that are sure, death and trials. I mean, at least as of late, aren't taxes a bit trying to all of us? So can it then come underneath the heading of trials? But what we know, if we have lived but even a moment on this planet, is that trials of various kinds, as James is going to articulate here, is one of the surest realities of life. That we live in a world that is dying and that is decaying, that creation around us is crumbling, that it longs for restoration by God and through Christ, And that one of the results of sin and deterioration is that the people in creation will indeed suffer. We live in a broken world. We live in a lost world. We live in a difficult world, a difficult time in creation. And so one of the great realities of life is various kinds of trials or testings, suffering. Um, And this is not only a reality for believers, and we're, we're going to talk about that. I mean, if you go to the text here, notice very carefully that James begins and ends this section. In verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers. And then down at the end in verse 16, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So that James the Apostle is writing specifically to believers. However, the reality of these various kinds of trials and the sufferings that may accompany them, they are a universal reality in the world. So that God's people and those who are not God's people, they all suffer alike. Black and white, young and old, pretty and ugly, Christian and non-Christian. We all find ourselves at some point enduring these various trials and sufferings. They are a part of every single person's life. And they take many different forms. And I have to tell you, as we begin, so I'm going to encourage you this morning to find joy in your trials and try to help show you how to do that. I have to tell you that it's kind of difficult, you know, for for me to think about my trials as that substantial. I mean, certainly, and and, and we've talked about trials and suffering a great many times, and I've told you that I, I never want to belittle the trials that we have, for they are real. The sufferings that we feel are very present and can be severe. But, but friends, we must also be willing to advocate that according to God's providence, we do not experience trials and sufferings the way that most people around the world do. I mean, let's face it, cancer and death and loss of job, All of the, most of the severest of trials that we experience, they are normal to the human experience. So that, so that in the darkest places of third world India, where they do not have food and they do not have shelter and they do not have clothing, they also have death and cancer and loss of job. So that we're not experiencing anything that they do not. Now, that doesn't mean to belittle it, but it just helps us to, I think, maybe reflect a bit on the reality that there are people, and especially Christians, in other parts of the world whose sufferings and trials, 
make ours look silly. Who are dying all the day for their faith. Who are being persecuted in a way that we cannot imagine because of their belief in Jesus Christ. Friends, I don't tell you that to make you think less of your trials. Simply to encourage you to persevere in them all the more. And to be thankful for the God who is at work in them and through them. And and to be thankful that according to God's providence, we're not enduring those same sufferings. But our sufferings, though they take maybe a different form and are to a different degree, the reality is that all people will face trials and all people will suffer. The question, though, is why? Why is this a universal reality? Why is this a part of life and a part of creation? Is it just because of fate or chance? Is it because we live in a world where at any moment, a star could fall out of the sky and just it just happened to land right on your truck with you in it. You were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. And well, these things just happen. Is it because our, our world is ruled by some force of fate or chance and there's really no rhyme or reason? Maybe, maybe it's because the world is full of evil that is running rampant. Is it because of the rampant evil in the world? Because the evil one and all of his minions are running loose, wreaking havoc in the lives of everyone in creation and even on creation itself. Is it perhaps because men are fundamentally evil? And somehow the law of karma is simply catching up to us. And we experience these trials and suffering because it's really just what we deserve. Well, there may be a bit of truth to all of those things. But none of those is the answer. None of these is even close to the answer. James, in fact, is going to give us the answer to why suffering is such a reality, especially in the lives of God's people in these verses. Friends, trials are universal because God uses them to bring about his purposes in us. That's a very different view of our suffering, isn't it? That God uses trials, ergo, trials are present because they are the, one of the means that God uses to bring about his purposes in us and in creation. And so I want to try to encourage us, to encourage you and myself this morning, as we face the various trials in our life that God allows and that he brings and that he sets before us, that we would do so with great confidence. Great confidence in the God who brings them, allows them, Right? Confidence in the God that has a plan for them and confidence in his plan and in his ability to bring about his own purposes through them. So first of all, let's look at verses 2 through 4. It begs the question, then, what is God's purpose? What is God's purpose in these various trials? Well, I cannot tell you what all of God's purposes are in trials because God has not given them to us to know. And we're going to revisit that in a few moments. But what I can tell you is what he has given us to know, and that is that we should count it all joy when we meet these various trials. Why? Verse 3, because we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness will have its full effect. When it does, we will be made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you see God's purpose in the trials? God's purpose in the trials is ultimately that his people would be brought to perfection, to completion, 
That we would be lacking in nothing. Isn't this an interesting view of suffering? Why? Because suffering is difficult, and suffering is hurtful, and suffering is painful. And we tend to think of suffering in a negative light. We tend to think of the trials and the valleys that we may trod in them in a negative light. But James is telling us that we are to find joy in them insofar as we understand that God's purpose is a good purpose. That he doesn't, he doesn't intend anything bad in our trials. He doesn't intend anything negative in our suffering. As odd as that may seem, and as illogical as that may feel to our human, our human minds, God is saying, and James is saying, that God intends to use our suffering and our trials only for good. That we would be made perfect. Friends, that's the language of holiness. I don't have to revisit the conference, but for those of you who were there, that should be made abundantly clear to you. As I, in, in my sermon, when I preach the language that God is holy is a reference in the Old Testament, namely to his unapproachableness. The idea that he is so holy and we are so unholy that we cannot be in his presence, that he is separate and distinct from us and we cannot approach him. So if we're ever going to be brought into union with God and communion and fellowship with God and into a relationship with God, what must God do? Something to make us holy, something to bring us to perfection, something to complete us that we would not be lacking in this holiness so that we can be in his presence, so that we can be with him. And so he sends Jesus. So he he comes incarnated in the flesh. To, to do for us what we cannot do. But so God uses these trials to bring about our holiness. To complete, I love the language there, completion, to complete the work that he began in us. Right? This ongoing work that we talked about all weekend of sanctification. That though we are not what we ought to be, praise God, we're not what we once were. We're somewhere on that road. And God, he says, uses the trials and the valleys and the darkness, not not to, to beat us down, but to exalt us. Because it's in those trials and it's through those sufferings that he is working to complete that work of sanctification in some mysterious way. And friends, can you not testify, even if we cannot understand, can you not also testify that there is no greater time of influence in your life. No greater time of learning in your life than in the moments of humility and trial and suffering. C.S. Lewis said this, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaking to our conscience, but he shouts to us in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Friends, we are, we are, we are never more attentive to God's voice than we, when we are suffering and in the depths of despair. We are never more humiliated and in a place where we are able to hear and learn than when we are going through various kinds of trials and sufferings. And, and friends, the testimony of history will bear witness to this as well. If you look at the places in the world where Christians are being tormented for their faith, where the suffering and the persecutions are, quite frankly, a bit different and maybe a bit more severe than that that has been experienced in America, what you find is that Christianity is flourishing in a way that it is not here in relative prosperity. 
Why? Because when people have nothing but Christ, they listen, they learn. They need him. He's all they have. So, so friends, somehow in this mysterious, illogical, at least from a human perspective way, God is using these trials to bring about our perfection. Uh, the order of these verses and the order of what he's doing here, I think, to, to help you gain a little bit of understanding, the logic seems to be a little bit odd. Um, I like the way Ligon Duncan argues for understanding this passage. And he says that we need to go to the end of verse 4 and begin at the end and work our way back through verse 4, then 3, then 2, because it helps us to see a little bit better of what's going on. We're given the purpose of God, which is perfection, completion, that we would be lacking in nothing, that we would be made holy, that he would complete the work that he began. That's at the end of verse four. But then if you go back just into verse three, after we're, you know, not in the order of the verses, but in the order of understanding, the purpose is that we would be brought to completion. The means through which that purpose is brought is what? Back at the end of verse three, testing. So that we are tested as the means to bring about this completion. It comes, uh, the testing then comes to us back up a little bit further. The testing, if it's the means to our perfection, the testing comes in the battleground of various kinds of trials and sufferings. And then the response that we are to have to those is to go back even further to the beginning, which is the call to count it joy, which may seem a bit strange to you, because how in the world, in the midst of the darkest struggles of your life, do you count them as joy? Well, friends, it's not until you understand the last three parts of his logic that it is through and on the battleground of these trials, by the means of testing our faith, that we are made steadfast and brought to completion, when you begin to understand that reality, then it's a bit easier to find joy in the suffering, to find joy in the trial. Why? Because you're able to recognize the work that God is doing in it. He's not advocating that you find joy in the pain. There's nothing joyful about loss. There's nothing joyful about cancer. And don't, don't, don't let any pastor tell you that there is. Life is difficult and painful. The joy is in knowing what God is doing with those things. Knowing what the end result will be. Friends, there's nothing more valuable. There, there's nothing that's not worth being sacrificed for our perfection. And if we live in that, if we live with that mindset and with that view, then we're able to count it all joy when we experience these trials. Not for the trial itself, but for the purpose that God intends to accomplish. Let me say this. How more practically about how do we find all joy in these? Let me, let me tell you, and I told you we were going to revisit this, how not to find joy in your trials. You will not find joy in your trials if you begin by pondering the secret counsel and the eternal plan of God in them. 
What I mean is, is that if you begin to look at yourself and say, why would you allow this to happen to me, God? How can this possibly be serving purposes that I don't understand? I don't see what you're doing. I can't grasp and understand. And we begin to try to wrap our human minds around the purposes and plan of God in its completeness so that we want to wrestle with and deal with and ponder the secret counsel of God. You will exist only in frustration and disappointment. Because what we read in Deuteronomy 29, 29, just a couple of months back, what? For the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But insofar as he has revealed things to us, they are ours to be known. So if you want to find joy in the trials and in the suffering, what we need is wisdom. We need a different perspective. We need to think not about what God's secret will is for those things, but about what his revealed will is. And I can tell you what his revealed purpose is, that you would be brought to perfection. You know how I know it? Because I just read it. It's in James 2 through 4. 1, 2 through 4. So, so the point is, let us, let, us, let us commit ourselves to be patient in suffering, to be patient with God's trials and the hand of trials that come upon us, let us bear them patiently, not concerned for the things and the aspects of them that we cannot understand, but with the view of them that James is giving us, that the Holy Spirit through James is giving us in his word, to simply understand that in some way, somehow, this is not a negative thing. God is not sending this trial to beat us down. God is using it in the battleground of testing to bring about our perfection. And friends, you can find joy then, I think, in the suffering. So that was the purpose of God in our trials. Let's consider then the problem of men, the problem of us, in the midst of the trials. If what we need is wisdom, the problem, friends, very simply, is that we don't have it. Look at what happens in verse 5. So that he gives us the, the, the overarching principle, if you will, the wisdom that is necessary to count all joy in our trials. Look at what he says in verse 5. And, and for so many, verses 2 through 4 and then verses 12 through 18 seem to explicitly deal with trial and suffering. And they seem to make a lot of sense together and go well together. And verses 5 through 11 seem to be very disjointed and out of touch. Why is he talking about wisdom and why is he talking about wealth and poverty when he's encouraging us to find joy in our trials? I'm going to try to show you what he's doing here. Look at what he says in verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And then here it is. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. What James is doing is he is helping us to understand that the reason as we walk through trials, we do not count it all joy and we do not find satisfaction in them is because we lack the wisdom and understanding necessary to do so. Well, what wisdom is that? It's the wisdom that he's given us in verses 2 through 4. And so then the problem of men is, first, that we doubt. Notice what he says there. That we are to ask for the wisdom that we lack, and we're to do so without doubting. We are are those who are full of doubt. Why? Because the one that doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
In other words, if you doubt God's plan and purposes and providences in your life, if you doubt that he is there, if you doubt that he is doing what he says he's going to be doing, then you're going to only find discontentment and frustration and pain in the midst of your trial. Friends, doubt is the seed that produces the flower of worldliness. Listen, we are driven to find things in the world to satisfy us, to depend upon things in the world, to fill our life with things in the world, because we doubt God and his purposes. Do you understand that? That if you doubt that God really does care for you, when you're suffering and when you're in the midst of those trials, if you doubt the reality that God really does care for you, and you begin to think, oh no, has God left me? Has God forgotten me? You know what you're going to do? You're going to seek out some solace in the world. You're going to find a person or a substance in a bottle You're going to find a place of refuge where someone or something gives you a feeling of being cared for. And it's because you doubt that God is there and because you wonder if he really does care. Friends, when we doubt that God is really doing these things for our good, when we say, oh, no, I don't see how this can possibly be for my good. This only feels like it's for my my bad. It's driving me to despair. I cannot possibly understand how God, and we begin to doubt that God is really good and that he's doing this for our good. You know what we do? We are driven to utter dependence upon ourselves Because we look out for our own good. So that we spend all of our time at work making more money that will ultimately be for our good that will protect us, that will provide for us, because this God, who is supposed to be looking out for my good, though I really doubt it, is doing these things in my life that I only see working to my negative, to my bad. And so we're driven to depend not only upon the world, but upon ourselves. Friends, when we doubt that God's plan for us could ever be brought by these trials, then we are driven to despair. When we forget that God is God and he is secretly and sovereignly working to bring these things to bear in us. When we forget that God cares for us, that he has not forgotten us, that he walks with us, that he means all of these things only for our good, then we will not ever, we will not ever find contentment. We will not ever find all joy in any trial that comes into our life. So do you see that the problem with men is that we lack wisdom. We, we doubt Notice there that one of the trials, coincidentally, is lacking wisdom. And that even in the trial of lacking wisdom, if you can call it that, when when we're despairing and driven to worldliness and dependence upon ourselves because of the wisdom that we lack, all we have to do is go to God who gives liberally and ask him of it. And James declares here unequivocally that God will give it. But it's not just doubt, what does he say? For the person that doubts should not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord because he is double-minded. Double-mindedness. When we doubt, when we are driven to worldliness, we are also driven to double-mindedness. Remember, Jesus said you cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot have two masters. You cannot love me and love the world. You cannot 
Be dependent upon me and be dependent upon yourself. You cannot be dependent upon me and dependent upon the world. You cannot be trusting in me and employing your own plan of action. You must trust me to, to, to bring about my intended purposes for you. Friends, we are driven to double-mindedness where we find all sorts of ways to forsake God's plan and to distrust his perfect unfolding will for our lives. We're confused. Our allegiance is, is tainted because we simply can't see what God is doing. And, and friends, you're never going to see all that God is doing, but, but what you can see is that God means these things to be bringing you to completion. So the problem with men then is that we lack wisdom. It is the wisdom of verses 2 through 4. He talks about them in verses 5 through 8. And then look, in verses 9 10 and 11, this business about wealth and prosperity, or wealth and poverty, prosperity and poverty, it's an example of the doubtful, double-minded man. Look at what he does. He gives an example. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also with the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. What's the temptation? What's the trial of great wealth, of great prosperity? Some commentators say that it is the greatest trial of life. What? It is that our allegiance would be called into question. It would be compromised because when you are in a position of great wealth and prosperity, you are not driven in the way that those who are in poverty are to depend upon God. Double-mindedness. We are driven to depend upon ourselves, to depend upon our wealth, to depend upon our jobs, to depend upon our own ability. And so what does he say? Let the rich man remember that he is like a, gra- like a flower of the grass, that he will indeed pass away, that his position, that his wealth, that his prosperity, that ultimately they will earn him nothing before God. He says, let the rich man boast in his humiliation, in his lowliness. In other words, let him not be so proud of who he is in himself. Let him only boast in what God is going to make of him one day. The converse is also true. It is the trial of poverty, isn't it? I think it's equally a difficult place to be. Because when you do not have anything, then you are very tempted to question God's providence in your life. Does God not care about me? Does he not know the needs that I have? Has he forgotten about me? All the things that we've just talked about. But what does he say? Rather than being driven to the world to find another job, if I could just get a job, if I could just have more money, if I could just fix this, my life would be better. We're driven to depend upon ourselves and on the world from the opposite end of the spectrum. He says, no, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. What exaltation? Let the lowly remember what God is going to make of him. Let the lowly remember that though he is nothing, he is something in Christ. Those of you that have been with us for some time, you remember a quote that I've given you on multiple occasions that Tim Keller uses. It's where I, it's where I found it. He uses it in his sermons where he's reading uh, an interview of Madonna. And, and I'm not going to give you the whole thing, but, but she's asked how it is that she continues to be relevant and how it is that she continues to work so hard and how it is that she continues to just be super successful in a field that is so changing. And her, and her answer is unbelievably telling and it is extremely sad. She says, I I have to work and I have to work and I have to work because then I receive some success and I become somebody. 
And she said, but ultimately that success fades. And I have to continue to work and work and work all the more because I have to be somebody. Friends, Jesus has made you somebody. That's why we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that he is, he is called the unwise to shame the wise of the world. He's called the lowly to put to shame the exalted and the kings. That's why it says here that the sun will rise with its scorching heat and it will wither the grass, its flower will fall, and the beauty that it has will perish, so the rich man will fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Friends, we are nothing but what we are in Christ. Do you see that if that's the mentality that you have, that you're able to trust in his purposes in your trials and in your suffering? So, so see, 5 through 11 are not maybe as disjointed as they may seem. He is giving us the problem of men in the midst of trials. The reason we cannot find joy is because we lack wisdom, because we are doubtful and double-minded, because we are depending upon the world and upon ourselves rather than upon God and his purposes. But then let's close here. If that's the problem of men, let's consider then the promise of God for those that faithfully endure trials. Because this is really where the encouraging part is. Look at what he says, beginning in verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under these trials. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those that love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. By the way there, that is not an advocation that God has nothing to do with your trials. And if that's the way you understand that, then you misunderstand the text. It is an advocation about the goodness of God and the purposes of the trials. That God is not giving these trials and bringing them and allowing them in your life in order to tempt you to sin. That would be a negative result of the trial, that God only allows the trials and God only brings them into our life, that God only allows his people to suffer like he did Job, not that they would be driven to sin. They're only driven to sin by their own lustful desires. God intends the trials to purify us and to perfect us. You see, that's a, that's a very careful clarification that I think needs to be made about those verses. The idea that the prosperity gospel preachers will tell you that God doesn't have anything to do with the bad, the bad things that go on in your life, it's utterly ridiculous. Friends, if God doesn't have something to do with them, who does? If there is some other force in the world that is in charge of bringing all of these horrific things into my life, the great suffering and persecutions that even I have endured in America, if there is some other force at work that God does not have control over, friends, I am terrified to face tomorrow. That's not the testimony of the sovereign God of the Bible. It is simply to clarify that he is not tempting us to sin. God does not intend those sufferings and those trials to beat us down and to drive us to sin. He intends them to build us up, to bring us to a place of exaltation and glorification. He intends them to make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And so it goes with the promise of God that if we will have this mind in us, that if we will understand this wisdom of James, that if we will not be doubtful of God's plan and double-minded with our allegiance to him, then those who remain steadfast under the trials... Notice that our commitment to them doesn't make the trial go away. That the trial will remain. For it must remain if God's going to bring about his purposes. The trial will end when God has completed the work. But for those who remain steadfast under the trial, 
Friends, take hope. Because when you have stood the test, you will receive the crown of life, which can only be given to the holy. When God finishes the work in you, you will receive the blessing that has been promised to you. And then he closes, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Again, the clarification that he makes in verses 13 and 14 and 15 about God not tempting anyone, not intending these things to drive them to sin. What does he say? That they are given as a good and perfect gift. Do not be deceived, brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Friends, the beautiful thing about biblical Christianity, and and this again is another quote that I've given you before. I think it's good sometimes that we're reminded of things we've heard. But listen, the beautiful thing about biblical Christianity as opposed to all other worldviews and world religions is what it teaches us about suffering. Because all other worldviews and all other world religions tell us to live it up now and to find joy now because you're just going to die later. But Tim Keller says, in walking with God through pain and suffering, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joy, foreseeing the coming sorrows, Biblical Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of life's sorrows with a taste for the coming joy. Do you see the difference? And it makes all the difference in the world. Friends, let me encourage you this morning. Be steadfast in the test and in the trials of your life, trusting in God's revealed plan for them that he would bring you to completion and make you perfect in Jesus. For whatever the sorrows of today are, they pale in comparison. Sit patiently and wait for the joy that is coming. Let's pray. Father, thank you that in Christ you are making us perfect and that because of what you have done for us in him, there is a crown of life that is waiting for us. There is joy unspeakable that is waiting for us one day. And God, although we sail rough waters now, we praise you for the promise that your word gives us that though the sailing will be rough and though the seas will be difficult, you have assured us of a safe harbor on the other side. God, for every person in this room, I pray that these words would be helpful wherever, wherever they are in, in their suffering whatever trial they face today, whatever trial and suffering will come into our life tomorrow, God, give us wisdom, not not just in a general sense. Give us wisdom that we might understand what you're doing in the trial to bring us to completion in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.